This is the Anatomy of a Scream Pod Squad Network. And welcome back to White Ladies in Crisis. It's a podcast dedicated to women losing their marbles. I am Joe Lipset, and I am joined as always by Jen Adams. As well as Gina Radcliffe. Hi, Gina. Hello. And it is Gina's pick this month, and she has... (laughs) Uh, Gina, you really sandbagged us with a very (laughs) heavy pick. (laughs) I'm very excited. We are talking about the Suspiria remake from 2018. So, Gina, I'm curious, why did you select this film? Um... Well, I, mostly I wanted an excuse to watch it again. Uh, okay, I, okay. I saw it. I saw it in the theater. Um, I apparently was one of the only people who saw it in the theater because, <laughs> boy, did this uh, did this tank hard at, at the box office. Uh, I mean, I'm not surprised. Uh, mm-hmm. I, I I compare it to uh, the movie Mother that came out uh, oh, uh-huh. okay. mm-hmm. 2016, in which you are either going to love it or you're going to hate it. Mm-hmm. Uh, where it's pretty much just an incomprehensible nightmare, <laughs> and, and I mean that in a very—I mean that in a positive way. Yeah, you know, where I was saying off air that uh, you know, this was the second time I watched it, uh, and I still don't really understand what's happening in it. Mm-hmm. But I am completely okay with that. Uh, I, I think one of my favorite David Lynch movies is Lost Highway, which might be his most incoherent oh, yeah. movie. <laughs> but I, I love it. It just it just looks like what a nightmare feels like to me. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there's something to be said about, I know people like to name drop surreal and Lynchian and that kind of stuff, but there is something to be said for films that seem to evoke or capture the feeling of a nightmare where, sure, you can unpack it, and there's definitely themes at work in this film, and yet at the same time, so much of it just feels like it's intangible or on the periphery of what we can understand, and I love that Mm -hmm. feeling. Yeah, same. So Jen, what about you? You mentioned off air that you had seen this quite a bit more than Gina and I, who have both seen it twice now. Oh, yes. This is um, this is the beginning of me starting to think about a category for me called that I think of as ASMR horror, where (laughs) I put it on for like the the feel of it, you know, Mm. Like, I've watched this three times in one day before because I put it on, like, and I, I mean, it's a background watch when I do it like that. But it's right. it's just, I find it really, really soothing. I love how earthy it is, you know. Mm. And there are definitely, like, horrific beats, but I don't ever really find them jarring. You know, there are only really a couple of moments that, like, really kind of take me aback you know a lot of it is just kind of this this like creeping nightmare but also it's kind of beautiful and I kind of love it I think the the languages are really soothing to my ears even if I'm not like reading the subtitles it just kind of the language just rolls over me you know mm-hmm. and you've got that really really gorgeous score Yes, the the Tom York song at the beginning and the at the end. I I don't think I've ever heard something up until maybe the score for Midsummer. I don't think I'd ever mm-hmm. heard a, a horror movie soundtrack that was just so beautiful and dreamy. 
Yeah, mm. it, it is gorgeous. And and even like the like the first chord at the very beginning, like the you know, it's still it's it fits with that. And so it just kind of feels like it weaves through this nightmare and dream, you know, and like the because I find the ending like really uplifting and positive and the I mean, and I think I'm thinking more like of the feeling that it's evoking rather than like the actual narrative of the story, you know? Uh, because she's because someone is being shown mercy and, and exactly and, you know that's yeah. a, and, and that's an interesting way to end you know a rather bleak movie right. right yeah and I think the more that I watch it the more I've begun to like it's just kind of like seeped into me and like for a while I was like okay there's this red scene at the end I'm just kind of letting it like wash over me and like the more I start to I watch it the more I really kind of internalize what it means, you know, and I think that's where the the positive feelings come in for me, you know. Yeah. There's an emerging subgenre of horror that folks affectionately call good for her horror, right? <laughs> and I've seen a number of people say, "Oh yeah, Suspiria definitely needs to be on that list because this is all about Susie Banyan sort of reclaiming her agency, taking back her power from her Mennonite upbringing and finding herself at this dance academy and then absolutely slaying the naysayers <laughs> uh-huh. and i definitely think that that's one very powerful reading but i'm interested that both of you naturally gravitated to the idea of mercy which is really where the film ends because i remember seeing early reviews where people said oh the bloodbath that ends the movie is really exciting and it like you know people said it was slow and ponderous up until that point but people Mm -hmm. often seem to overlook the epilogue because of course this film is broken into six chapters and an epilogue Mm -hmm. and it's not by accident that we end this movie with mercy Mm -hmm. right yeah she shows mercy towards uh, the three girls that the the mm-hmm. which is tormented. I mean, they were they were doomed to die. She couldn't save them, so mm-hmm. she she you know gave she granted them a peaceful death. Mm-hmm. Right. Well, and then there's the um, leper. Right, right, right. That's what I was thinking of with with you know. I mean, she she gives him the the ultimate mercy and in, in you know making him forget everything that has caused him so much pain. Right. Right. Yeah. And I kind of I think I look at it as like a reestablishment of order, you know, where most of the film has kind of lived in this like chaotic power struggle because the past couple of times I've really started to kind of pick up the larger mythology of this. I've only seen the original Suspiria. I have not seen uh, Tenebrae and... um, Mother of Tears. Yes. Uh-huh. So I don't know exactly what the original um, mythology is, but I love this idea that Mother Suspiria is really just kind of, I wouldn't necessarily say a force for good, but she is really like kind of a loving, compassionate mother. And she is like the bloodbath is removing the like corruption, you know. And so mm-hmm. when she goes to talk to Clipper, she's like, she just shows that that she is capable of mercy, and so she doesn't feel so scary, you know. I feel like I stumbled all over that, but you know. <laughs> <laughs> no, she's 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 putting things in order. Like one thing I like, right. it, it seems it seems like she just goes into that room and just explodes everybody's heads. 
Uh-huh. But she doesn't. She she only right. she only draws out the people who are directly working against her. That's that mm-hmm. whole thing where right before everybody died, you see a flashback of them saying Mother Marcos because that's yeah. sort of who they were. They were announcing who they were aligning with. So a couple of them mm-hmm. were were spared. Mm-hmm. Right, right, yeah. The ones and even them, like it's not necessarily that she spared the the good witches and the bad witches died. It's the ones that were like following. I think at one point she says, that's not the light we chose to follow as a group. So the ones that were following like the pure light, which is Madame Blanc are the ones that she spares, even though they did some terrible things. And that's when she goes to apologize to Klepper. She's like, I don't condone what they did. Mm -hmm. And she actually doesn't even apologize. She says, I regret what they did. I couldn't stop it. You know? Well, Which I think is because also let's let's not pretend that Klemper is exempt. Like, sure, she offers him mercy and takes away his memories, but it doesn't mean that he is without guilt or responsibility. Like, and I think that's one of the fascinating parts about this film, right? Like, at the end of the day, there are very few kind of pure slash traditionally good characters. Mm-hmm. Because even our introduction in chapter one to Patricia, the Chloe Grace Moritz character, you know, we mm. we see her as this frightened girl who's being terrorized by witchy attacks. But we eventually learn that she is part of a gently terrorist organization that is <laughs> uh-huh. doing bombs around East Berlin and that kind of stuff. So mm-hmm. it it's an interesting juxtaposition to sort of suggest like just because someone presents as good or frail or feminine, it doesn't mean that they aren't without power. It doesn't mean that they maybe haven't done bad shit. Right. Right, exactly. The thing that I love the most about this movie is that, you know, and as a person who's really kind of dived into like exploring what witchcraft can actually mean mm-hmm. in reality, you know, it's like nobody is pure or good right. or bad because this world exists before we created the rules for a lot of that, you know? Mm. Like when they're talking about the mothers, like it was before God, it was before like right. I can't even re- I can't remember exactly what he says, but it's like this is like a representation of just the earth and like the compassionate nature of humanity is what this coven I think could be and what the mothers kind of represent to me. And so it's not necessarily about good or bad. It's about like just how you, what you choose, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and I was going to say, I mean, Klemper's the sin ultimately is that he just doesn't listen to women, which yes. is, which, which, is, which, <laughs> yes. is, which is his guilt over his wife's death because mm-hmm. right. she is, she is basically telling him, hey, you know, we're in danger. And he's like, no, mm-hmm. no, you know, I mean, because it's the Holocaust that's coming. Mm-hmm. And, 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 and one, of the, one of the most gripping lines in this movie is after uh, he, he, you know, he finally realizes something might be going on at this school. And so even though he's like a million years old, and of course, the interesting twist, this is Tilda Swinton. Playing yes. playing yeah. this character, which is which is yes. even even the second time around, and knowing this, this is just astonishing to me. Mm-hmm. Uh, and he is essentially kidnapped and forced to you know, observe this the ceremony in which mm-hmm. Susie is supposed to be taken over by the. She looks like Job of the Hut. Yeah. <laughs> yes, she does. Uh-huh. <laughs> um, but but she's you know basically decrepit and 
centuries old and her body is falling has fallen apart and the young and beautiful Susie is basically going to be her vessel to to mm-hmm. you know be renewed and they're you know part of this involves sacrifice which is mm-hmm. uh Patricia Olga and Sarah uh mm-hmm. who are th- three students in the school uh but when he is kidnapped and dragged into the school one of the witches says to him when women tell you the truth, you just tell them they're delusional. You you, you don't mm-hmm. you don't listen to them. You don't you you don't show them compassion. You just minimize their fears and tell them that they're making it up. Mm-hmm. And, and she's directly talking about his wife. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You know, who disappeared at some point, and he has just convinced himself that you know she just ran off and he's never seen her again. Of course, she died in the Holocaust, and and mm-hmm. and you know this is one of the things that that. Susie tells him at the end of the movie, and you think that it's meant to be cruel, but it's not. It's mm-hmm. you know, you know, you know, she did die, but you know, she was at peace, and she was thinking about how much she loved you. Yeah, and and here's what happened. You right. never know. You know yeah, yeah, I mean, she basically died of exposure, which you know isn't mm-hmm. isn't the best way to die. But I mean, I guess if you you had to choose, you know, I mean, I guess that yeah. would be it. And then and then she just takes it out of his mind completely. Mm-hmm. He's, you know, brought to peace with it and then he never has to think about it again, which, again, is is Mm -hmm. extraordinarily merciful. Yeah. Yeah, it's a weird creative decision in a way. I wasn't sure that I liked it the first time I saw the film because I thought so much of this film has been about him not believing women and like, like, let's get it on the table. This film is incredibly feminist and not just the decision to basically have maybe three male characters in this entire film <laughs> and they're not even characters and one of them's played by a woman <laughs> yes exactly and two of the two of them are hypnotized and like you know laughed, laughed at, at. How, how small their ticks are <laughs> mm-hmm, mm-hmm. yeah so like this, this film is obviously very interested in the way in the ways of like female agency decision making hierarchies but also it it very much is about how men when they come into the conversation can really fuck shit up if they exert their traditional masculine tendencies to not listen not believe and so on mm-hmm. so i i was intrigued because part of me felt like this was too much of a softening of susie particularly after what we just saw it felt like the film's attempt to tamp down on her ridiculously awesome powers Mm -hmm. and it took me a long time to reconcile with the fact that she is obviously doing him a kindness by telling him the truth and then taking it away but also i think to a certain extent it gives us an idea that she will be a more benevolent leader which helps to not diminish but ease the sheer ultra violence that she enacts on marco's followers like like you said, Jen, she's not punishing them. She's saying, like, you are cancerous. You have misled the coven, and we have done things badly. And really, that's the movie we've been watching. It's not a power right. grab. It's about this dance company has gone off the rails under Marcos, so now we are taking out the trash. Right. Yeah, right. and that she is, like, kind of pretending to be this person that she is not, and that is really what the corruption, I think, is whereas I think Madame Blanc really just has a pure vision, you know. I I don't know. I kind of align my. I it's hard for me to view witches in a negative light, you know. Mm-hmm. Even when they're doing terrible shit, and that's part of why I like this movie so much, is because I feel like there are so many different representations of motives for witches, you know. Mm-hmm. 
Because I look at Madame Blanc and I think she's she's the good guy. Although for a long time I thought she was the bad guy when I just was mesmerized by Tilda Swinton, you know. Right. But there really isn't, you know, and I, I don't know if that's going back on what I said a, a while ago. It's it's just it's what what you choose and what the design for the, the larger group should be, you know. Well, I think Blanca is a mystery character, right? Like, mm-hmm. we don't understand her motivations, even as we can see her taking Susie under her wing. So it's easy to almost misread some of her things. Like, not to bring she who shall not be named onto the podcast, but uh, <laughs> Blanc does remind me a little bit of like a Dumbledore figure, where it's like, mm. I have a vision for you, and I'm going to guide you to it. But also, I'm being kind of shitty by not letting you in on my plans. I think that's what she realizes the flaw was with uh, Patricia, too, is that they mm-hmm. were really trying to force her. Yes. Although, in the end, what they are doing is they're taking over the body of another girl, you know? Yep. Like, it feels okay with Susie because, one, she conquers, and two, because she seems willing. But, mm-hmm. like, if you think about how distressed Patricia is at the beginning of the movie, it's because they're taking her body, you know? Yes. And they're not really asking. And so I think Madame Blanc, like, she... One, I think she has a connection with Susie that feels like larger than what really has been going on, probably because part of her, I think, recognizes her as a yeah. period. Yeah, exactly. But I feel like she is asking for Susie's consent, not necessarily because it is the kinder or the the better thing to do, but because it'll make the spell work better, you know, like it'll mm. be more successful. Right. My, my practical question about Madame Blanc is, is she immortal? <laughs> well, I think all of them are, right? I think they all are, yeah. Okay, because like her like her head was hanging off. Mm-hmm. And then like, at the end of the movie, she's still alive. Uh, like, yeah. has, she, has she always been immortal? Or is that some sort of gift that you know, Mother Susp- uh, oh, hmm. Susperiorum gave her yeah. you know, for, for being one of the good ones? I love the design of how she dies, too. Like, just that cut to the back of her neck, I think, is so... It's just really cool, and it fits the aesthetics of the the overall film so well, too. Well, it feels like a religious thing, too, right? Mm -hmm. Like, it looks as though she's kneeling and praying, and then she's been Mm -hmm. cut down. But yeah, it's funny that you mentioned that, Gina, because I was certain that I had imagined that look. Because it's a blink-and-you-miss-it piece where you realize, oh, Blanca's still alive, but also Mm -hmm. she's gone to sleep and... It also reminded me of the Underworld movies where they just rotate between leaders <laughs> and put the other two to bed until they're ready to like swap out. And I was like, oh, maybe if we had have gotten a sequel and this movie hadn't tanked, then maybe we would get more Tilda and they would just be like, yeah, we just popped your head back on. You're good to go. <laughs> yeah, just have it like take place in the present because I think this was to be like 1977 or thereabouts. Uh, yeah, because yeah, it takes place the exact same year as the original Suspiria came out. Right, right, right. I cannot tell you who half of these women are. Like, I'm looking at the cast list and I'm like, which one is Miss Griffith and which one is Miss Belfour? Uh, I know. There's so many of them. I'm like, I'm like, look at that one scene in the uh, near the end where they're in a restaurant. And I'm like, oh, my God, there's right? like there's like 17 of them. <laughs> yeah, it's funny because I found the film a little ponderous the first time I saw it, like, the two hours and 20 minutes did feel long to me in the theater, but then watching it again for this and like knowing about the pacing, I felt that it was actually really well done in that regard, but it was, it was hard the first time around. 
Yeah, I, I liked it a lot the first time I saw it, and I liked it more this time. Mm-hmm. I almost kind of look at it like a playlist. Like, I've rarely watched it all the way through, and I've seen the first hour more times than the rest of it, you know? Oh, that's interesting. So, like, you would watch, like, part one or part four or something like that? Yeah, and not necessarily in the official chapters, but I kind of think of them as like the the chunks of the movie, like the big beats, you know, like the Olga scene and then the, mm. the dance scene. And um, there's one when Susie is jumping in the practice room. I really like that scene too. So sometimes if I have it on, I'll just watch till the end of that and then I'll turn it off. But the first time I watched this, I actually got a link from Terry and I was watching it and the link didn't have the subtitles on. Oh. And I I was just like, okay, I guess this is a creative choice because knowing like that the original, the actors speak all of these different languages and then it's dubbed in English. It's like, okay, maybe I'm just not supposed to understand this part. So I watched it for like 20 minutes without the <laughs> subtitles on. And finally I was like, okay, this can't be right. So no. I went back and turned them on. <laughs> I found that a couple of times too. It makes for an interesting experience because yeah, we we have entered an era where filmmakers are unafraid to be like, oh, well, there's a character in this scene who doesn't speak that language and therefore they don't understand. So you, the mm-hmm. audience, will not understand. So yeah. you're never quite sure, are you? Mm-hmm. Especially with a movie like this, it feels so trippy, you know? Yeah, it's like, it's like, it's like, I feel like that might be a uh, foreign language, but it could just be some made up shit. I don't know. (laughs) Right. (laughs) Yeah. So one of the things that I was really interested in is just this range of women that we have. And one of the things I kind of lament is that even though this movie is like two and a half hours or nearly two and a half hours, we still don't fully get a sense of like who all of these witches are and what their roles and responsibilities are. I will say this rewatch made me fall in love with Miss Tanner. She has the the almost bob, like the severe bob Mm. cut. Uh, With the bangs. Yes. Mm. Yes, I so I quite her. liked her, but I I was really taken with all of these other women, and particularly the scene where the one woman with the glasses dies by suicide unexpectedly. Mm-hmm. And I just thought, you know, I would take a whole other movie of just how did they come to find each other? How did they set up this dance academy? Give me more of these witches. Yes, let's speak it into existence. Yes. Yeah, like, yeah, like just how, how old some of them are, because most of them mm-hmm. seem to skew, like, you know, as far as how they look to, you know, the outside world. And they're, mm-hmm. they're, they're a lot of them are much older women. Like, you would, you know, mm-hmm. and, and not all of them have what you would classify as, as a dancer's body, which is, right. you know, which is interesting. But then you also have the young black witch, who is, mm-hmm. uh, it's a, she's a model named uh, Alec Weck. Which, mm-hmm. uh, like, if you read like, fashion magazines on with like, the 90s and all, she was a very distinctive-looking model. Oh, okay. But I'm just like, she seems to be the youngest one. Mm-hmm. And, but at the same time, I feel like you don't go by what they look like as to how old they're supposed to be. Because right. I think that they're, you know, pretty much, they're, they're eternal at the, at, the, at the age that they were, you know, brought into this coven. Mm-hmm. Well, and I want to know, like, the mechanics of this company also, you know, like, part of the reason I love this movie so much is because I kind of have this obsession with ballet, you know, which is the reason I love Black Swan. So when I think about those two movies and, like, the companies that we're seeing, like, I want to know more about these performances, like, what is Volk, why, like, 
there's supposed to be like this world renowned company and I just want to know more about it. Like what roles do all of these women play? Who makes the costumes? There are some witches in the basement, like especially that big contralto who's singing so low and she's so cool, but we don't see her in any other scene. So mm. I just wonder like what's up with them too. So yeah, I would watch an entire I would watch an entire lifetime of all of this because I just eat it up. I love it. <laughs> I, I, I love that their their costumes for Volk sort of, to me at least, evoke someone being being disemboweled, which is uh-huh. which is, yeah. and, and that's what they end up you know doing to you know these poor right. girls that they you know keep hidden in their basement. Like you know you just got. Oh, like, I hadn't thought about that. I mean, I could be wrong. I'm completely pulling that out of my butt. But but uh, I think you're right. But That's yeah, it, it just looks sort of like, you know, like your intestines are falling out. You've got all these like red ribbons and ropes mm-hmm. all like, you know, coming at you, you know, around your torso. Mm-hmm. And I, I just feel like that's very, you know, it, it reminds me of like, you know, human flesh. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, I love too the emphasis on dance. I mean, obviously it mm-hmm. makes sense given that we're at a dance academy and we're drawing from Argento's original, but mm-hmm. there's something so interesting like i i guess i haven't really thought of dance as a primarily female space and yet you know this film deliberately gets rid of any kind of male dancers and i think it's a very mm-hmm. it's a very exciting creative choice on guaraguino's part because it not only creates this very like maternal very feminine mystique kind of space but we also get to focus exclusively on the way that the women's bodies move like synchronously and it never I'm a big dum-dum so it never even occurred to me that the spell at the end is a different kind of dance right like we see Mm -hmm. the women performing in different kind of synchronized moves but like the dance has a power that's the spell casting in this movie Mm-hmm. Right, and their and their style of dancing, it's very aggressive. It's mm-hmm. very you know, kind of snapping body parts and jumping and sort of making these like very animalistic grunting. And, it, and it's right. it's and it's not the the type of dance you normally see women do. You traditionally in right. yeah. dancing, you know, the women are very delicate. They're they're very they're being lifted. Yeah, right. They're mm-hmm. like bending like a flower in the wind, and it's and it's you know, it's the men who you know you know have that aggressive energy brought to the dance floor. And here, it's the women that have the aggressive energy. So I think that if you were to bring a man into it, like it basically like dance fighting. Yeah. Yeah. There, when Susie's talking about like what it felt like to dance the part, she's talking about like fucking, but not like with a person. She's yeah. talking about just kind of feel having this feeling come into her. And that's what I love about the connection between dance and witchcraft, too, is like that this is like your body is becoming the spell, you know, and your body is you're you're not necessarily losing control, but you're giving over control of it for the greater good of your coven, mm-hmm. you know. Like, there's the scene where Madame Blanc is talking about, like, when you dance the dance of another. And, my God, I could just die for all of her lines, you know? Like, (laughs) we must break the nose of every beautiful thing, and it's a whole thing we do. And it just, I die for it every time. But she's talking about, like, you are becoming someone else when you're dancing because your movements and your expressions and what your entire body looks like has been planned by somebody else to evoke a feeling in the audience which i think is essentially kind of what spells kind of are you know 
Right, and what and what ultimately happens to to Olga, which is probably you know for me at least the most horrifying scene yeah. in the whole in the wow. whole movie <laughs> is it's just basically a much more intense version of their dancing, where where yes. like you know, you know her head snaps around and like her spine twists and and mm-hmm. you know it, it's just sort of you know hyped up version of the dancing they do, and, and but she's unable to, you know, she, she, she can't push back against it. So, you mm-hmm. know, what, whatever, you know, the dancing is doing to her body, it's, it's doing it without her you know, being in control of it. Right. Mm-hmm. But it also sort of mirrors the kind of progression that we see as dancers get older, or as they get injured, right? Like, mm-hmm. there's such an interesting push and pull between like the effects that the dancing has as a spell, but then also how it just mirrors the natural progression of what will happen to a dancer. And then Jen, I was thinking as you were talking, the way that this movement happens you have to give yourself over to it, like give yourself over to another. I'm like, oh, it's also like a bit of a metaphor for being a moviegoer and like Mm. letting this movie take you on that ride, right? If you try Mm. to resist the vision of the film in in any capacity, but I think especially here where it is slow and deliberate and like the color choices are so fucking specific, like we are Mm -hmm. trying to create a mood and a sensation if you try to resist it, you're not going to get anything out of it. But if you can let yourself be swept away, this movie will make you feel so much, right? Right. And that's what it comes down to with me. Just, you know, I'm not, I'm not going to try to figure out what's happening here. I'm just going to, I'm just, <laughs> I, I, I'm just going to go for the ride. Just, you know, take in you know, everything, kind of drink in everything I'm looking at. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because it feels like you're you're becoming immersed in a world, you know, and the, I'm just spending my time in this world. And I find this world very soothing. And what's interesting, Joe, is as you were saying that, I was thinking the thing that I think a lot of moviegoers would want to do when they're watching this, especially for the first time, is say, let, try to line it up with the original, you right. know? Yeah. And I think the original really kind of casts its own spell, you know, as we were preparing to do that, I just put the original on and I've only seen it once. I'm not super familiar with it, but it's one thing I love about this, this update or the remake is that he's like, no, I'm going to do my own thing. I'm Mm going to go completely in the opposite direction and I'm still going to make it like, it still feels kind of like the same movie, but just like maybe on a different planet, you know? Absolutely. I mean, I feel like when people talk about horror movie remakes in particular, people like to shit on them unequivocally. Uh. And I think in part it's because we did get burned in the 2000s (laughs) when we just like went through the list, remade them as honestly teen slashers which i personally mm-hmm. love but a lot of them Same, yeah. were not exceedingly well executed they didn't have a strong vision so mm-hmm. i think people often think of the 80s trifecta right it's the thing the blob and the fly the fly thank you mm-hmm. yeah and part of that is that those all have a very strong creative directorial vision right like mm-hmm. smart scripts good acting but it's the visual aesthetics like And we're not just updating it. We're doing our own thing with it. And Mm -hmm. I absolutely put Suspiria on that list because this would have been so easy to come in here with a synth score and bright colors and just fuck it all up and have everybody go, well, it's not the original, boo, cast aside. And instead, like we said, no, we're deliberately choosing a completely different color scheme. We're going with a completely different mood. We're going with a different tone. Like the only thing that's similar 
is the dancing and the witchy like female vibes and yet Mm -hmm. you're right jen this feels like a spiritual successor like it almost Mm -hmm. doesn't feel like a remake in that regard Right. Yeah, I feel like this movie could completely stand on its own. And it's like, you know, a lot of people don't realize that the thing and the fly and the blob are remakes. I think people mm-hmm. less so with the blob, but like I could see 20 years from now this movie kind of living on its own. Uh, although, I mean, the original is kind of a seminal film, but but yeah, yeah I mean, they feel like different movies with their own vision, which is why I think they're both so successful in their own way, you know. Mm-hmm. I think one of the reasons why this movie suffered is because it was coming at a time when you had Hereditary, you had Midsummer, right? You had a mm-hmm. lot of you know what would become known as you know quote unquote elevated horror, which which right. which doesn't really <laughs> it, it's a meaning it's a meaningless phrase. Basically, yes. basically all it means is you know horror that has an actual plot and spends a little time about. <laughs> developing the characters before things start going down and it turns out people don't like that in horror (laughs) which which (laughs) i which i think is interesting because i find that things are rather more impactful when i feel i've gotten to know these characters somewhat now not to be fair the only character you really spend an extended amount of time with in in Suspiria is Susie and Miss Blanc, and maybe maybe mm-hmm. a little bit of maybe a little bit of Sarah, who is mm-hmm. uh, Mia Goth. Is that actually how her last name is pronounced? Yeah, I think okay. so. she's my new favorite person after X. Now, by the way, oh yeah, <laughs> she's she's great. She gets to use her actual accent in, the, in this, uh, <laughs> which I was blown away by. <laughs> yeah. You don't really get to, again, it does suffer from, you know, having maybe too many witches because it doesn't get, yeah, they're a little interchangeable in places, uh, but maybe mm-hmm. that's on purpose. I don't know. I, I get the, I get the feeling that uh, the director is not someone who does things accidentally. No. Mm-hmm. That he made a very deliberate choice to have, you know, so many of these women running this school that after a certain point, you can't tell them apart from each other. Yeah. But you do spend enough time in this world, then when you know, stuff starts going off the rail, you're like, oh, okay, I see, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm into this now, rather than mm-hmm. just having, you know, 12 characters, you know, in various states of undress, just showing up, <laughs> saying two lines of dialogue and getting their heads cut off. I mean, those, those movies are fun. I, I enjoy this, but those are, they, they feed a different need than these kinds of movies do. And, and I oh, find really. that I am, I am drawn more to rewatching movies that, you know, actually treat these characters less people in them. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I am going to lose a little bit of my horror cred, but I put on the first Ouija the other day because I just wanted something dumb that would distract, <laughs> <laughs> with pretty people that would distract me. So, yeah, I hear you. It's like there, there, there. Are, it feels like there are different goals, you know. One yeah. is just kind of like maybe like if I were reading through like Creepypasta or something, but then there's the other, the kind of film that's really going to captivate me and scare me on like a deeper, like more thematic, level you know more unsettling and not saying that those kind of movies can't be scary because i look at hereditary which i think is both unsettling and terrifying and has some jump scares you know Mm -hmm. but it just it's what i'm looking for when i watch 
what what feeling do I want, you know, and that kind of guides. And sometimes like these movies, it's just I'm not in a place where I can give myself over to it, you know, so that's right. why I haven't watched The Lighthouse yet, you know. Oh, interesting. I, I think the other piece of the pie here is what kind of experiences are people looking for when they go to a theater versus mm-hmm. when they can immerse themselves in an experience at home. Like, mm-hmm. I was so excited for this movie. Like, I I gathered my girls and we went to the <laughs> theater on opening night. And I was absolutely shit terrified that this experience would be ruined for me mm-hmm. with people looking at their phones, with people not paying attention to the movie, with people talking or that kind of thing. Because I had had a string of really bad theatrical experiences and this was a slow two and a half hour movie so mm-hmm. i was really worried it ended up being okay because like eugenia i think it was me my girls and like maybe three <laughs> other people in this theater so we didn't mm-hmm. have to worry too much about other folks but to me even though i think this this movie plays exceedingly well on a big screen where you can take in all of the detail and hear the really great sound design and that kind of stuff it also, to me, plays better at home because I can control my environment. And even, like, it's two and a half hours. Like, sometimes I want to, like, pause it and take a breather or, like, prepare myself or, like, speculate, oh, okay, I'm having difficulty processing the the terrorist subplot and is there more to it? Do I want to pause and just give it a think and then move on and so on? Mm-hmm. It's funny because I feel like maybe five years ago, we would have looked at the theater as the immersive, more immersive experience, you know, it's just Mm -hmm. interesting. And I've never seen this outside of my home. Um, And I've loved it every time because I can completely control what is going on and who's around me and I'm not distracted. Whereas I think it's just times have changed, you know? And, mm-hmm. and I think the movie, I don't know. I don't think the movies have really changed that much. I think we're just watching different ones now. But that's maybe yeah, a whole other yeah. conversation. But I do think the other piece is that this film will age exceedingly well, right? Like we oh, yeah. we seem to have landed into a cultural moment in about the last five to ten years where what we do is lament films that bailed at the box office and then gain either a cult audience or they get reappraised rediscovered uh Mm -hmm. you know five to ten years too late and i absolutely think you know when this film comes up on its five-year anniversary next year when it comes up on its 10-year anniversary we are just going to get this flurry of think pieces of people being like suspiria 2018 is good actually who (laughs) knew it's like it's like it's like bitch i've been saying so since it came out Totally, yeah. yeah. <laughs> I think it's sad because I think, you know, I would have loved to have seen a sequel to this if it had it done well. And I think mm-hmm. had it financially done better, we would have maybe gotten it. I mean, it it depends on the creative team and whether or not they want to come back and all that kind of stuff. But like, we, we did hear talks about a sequel. Mm-hmm. There could have been something more to this. But also, at the end of the day, it's like, at least we still have it, right? Like this film will never go away. So Mm -hmm. even if people do discover it and we get to be like, fuckers, where were you? Like, thanks for jumping on the bandwagon five to 10 years too late. At least we have had this experience since 2018. 
And this movie feels so like singular in a way to me that I don't, as much as I said, I would watch the shit out of all of these witches forever, Mm -hmm. like in a Big Brother style, like show or something. (laughs) But like, I don't want a Netflix TV series of Suspiria because I I don't think it's going to have that same power. Right. And like, I feel like, I don't want to say this is a perfect movie, but I feel like it is such a complete vision that I worry if we did start extending it, that it might lose a little bit of its power. And I think like, again, I'm not super familiar with the original trilogy, but like if we got a different story about Mm -hmm. a different coven, you know, with the same kind of creative team until this went and can play like, five different roles there too and still watch it. <laughs> Again, yes. <laughs> yeah, I think I would almost prefer that because there is something about these mysterious witches that I just, they're kind of living in my head and I'm wondering what they're doing, you know. Yeah. But I don't know if I want to <laughs> see them do boring stuff. <laughs> I mean, it's tough, right? We, like, I'm thinking, Gina, you literally have a whole other podcast that goes through franchises and you see what sequels and remakes do to original right. properties and mm-hmm. sometimes you can get gems like i'm not going to pretend that oh it's originals only and everything else is shit but we have seen that when financials dictate the process more often than not the output is less rich and yeah i'm not suggesting that that would be the case here but there's always a bit of a worry right like yeah. are we getting this just because something made money or because they want to make money as opposed to there's a genuine creative urgency yeah, yeah. Like There's my 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 issue with a lot of remakes uh, and a lot of sequels too in franchises is that they are made by people who don't actually like horror movies. Mm-hmm. There is that, and think that they are dumb, and think that people who watch them are dumb, but they know that they make money, so that's what they're mm-hmm. that's what they're banking on. Here, mm-hmm. as different as it is, it's a movie as it is. Luca Guadagnino, he really he loves the original movie you can yeah. you can you can you can see that he was trying to be as respectful as possible while mm-hmm. not trying to do a frame for frame remake yes mm-hmm. yeah he wasn't he wasn't trying to you know quote unquote improve on the original he was just trying to do a different take on it which is which is fine because yeah it, it does it doesn't need to be improved on there's nothing wrong with the original movie but I think right. that yeah. you know you could you could change the setting, change the look a bit. You know the one thing that points out is that the colors in this are very muted, except for obviously the red costumes at the end. Right. Mm-hmm. But it's still you know at the heart of it is still the same movie. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, it's like viewed through a different lens. You know? Right. Which to me is the smartest way to approach a remake. It's like, even if you love it, don't try to improve upon it. Tell your version of that story, but you have to make it your own. Yeah. And you have to know what that vision is too. Yeah. You Mm -hmm. can't just hit the beats, you know? (laughs) So true. (laughs) Yeah. Because that's the thing, right? It's like, we don't have a room full of barbed wire in this movie. You know, we do have Susie counting out the steps to find a secret room. But really, it's like the homage bits in this movie don't play like, hey, have you seen Suspiria 1977? Here's Mm -hmm. a scene for you. It's like... Right. Wink, wink. Yeah, it's the gentlest of wink. But Uh really, it's in service always, first and foremost, of Luca's story. Yeah, and if you'd never seen, if you didn't know the original existed, I feel like this still, you right. would, could still find plenty in this movie. But oh, it's absolutely. just like the little absolutely. mining, you know. Yeah. Yeah. 
All right. Well, is there anything else that we want to talk about with Suspiria 2018? Uh, I, can't, I can't get over the the, the, the score. I, 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 oh, love, yes. I love the music from it. I just think it's so dreamy and beautiful. Mm-hmm. That is so funny. I like the score, and I don't enjoy Tom York's songs. Like I, oh yeah, <laughs> I definitely appreciate what you two said off the top about how they do set the mood, and they are mm-hmm. very dreamy. But I don't know. I just don't like them. I do feel like it's out of place somehow. Mm-hmm. When it kind of reminds me a little bit of Firestarter, like the original film where it's got this tangerine dream score that feels very dreamy that kind of smooths off the rough edges you Mm. know and you know maybe that's not what this would necessarily need because I feel like the bloodbath to me I never thought about it as a bloodbath you know that that is not a word that would come to mind because I think I'm connecting more with the just the dreamy feel of the music with it you know because it's a very different kind of song than I think anyone else would put over this oh sure like a horror movie score would have fit in here and yet that decision was obviously like no we're not gonna do that right and it's almost like that you know that Annie Lennox song at the end of Dracula which yeah. is I absolutely love but it's like I it feels like a little bit of a tonal shift you know but I just it just really works for me that said I have never listened to it in isolation I don't right. know if I would enjoy it on a playlist but I love it with the visual you know mm-hmm. I mean if nothing else it's unexpected that's true I'm hearing the two of you saying that it works for you. For me, it's Mm -hmm. not my favorite part of this film, but Mm -hmm. it's also not a safe decision. Totally. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, and I'm a sucker for piano too, but then there's also like the drums when they're uh, like, it almost feels like a jazz drum set playing, you know, that's just so, and it's got the seventies earthy feel to it and, in Mm -hmm. places you know like the diegetic music when they're listening when she plays the music and they're dancing to it feels tinny in a way that i find really appealing also you know yeah i'm a sucker for like the costuming and the color palette in this film like i know that people have described it as washed out and too beige Uh, and too tan and too taupe and so on but a i'm like have you seen the 70s Right. Oh yeah. Totally. Been to Berlin. (laughs) Right. Well, there's the red of her hair and like the burgundy of her like leotards, you know, and it just. But the color choices and the combinations, I think, is what makes it so visually appealing to me. You know. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I was was born in the '70s. It was a very brown time. (laughs) It was, and and I don't think Mm -hmm. that this is necessarily yeah. Like it's not one tone either, right? Like there are layers here, but part of it is that we are in a period of despair and uncertainty and i feel like that is a hundred percent represented by this visual palette totally yeah Mm -hmm. okay well i think that'll wrap up suspiria 2018 this is a honestly a film we could have talked about for three more hours oh gosh Mm mm-hmm yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, ain't nobody got time for that. So, <laughs> Jen, if people want to talk to you about watching certain sequences of this movie, how would they get a hold of you? <laughs> you can find me um, on Twitter and Instagram at Jen Ferratu. You can find me co-hosting the Losers Club podcast and the Psychoanalysis podcast about mental health and horror. And I could see us doing this as a comfort horror movie oh, that 100%. I would probably choose. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> 
So yeah, um, and just writing about, I have a column about witches at Room Org, so if you're curious about my witch stuff, then check that out. There we go. And Gina, what about you? I co-host the Kill by Kill podcast, which we talk about horror movies, focusing on the characters. Uh, we will be, uh, this month we'll be getting back to our coverage of Hannibal. We're getting yes. into, uh, se- digging into season three. Um, hopefully not the last season. There are rumors. We've, we've heard rumors. There might be a season four. I'm not counting on it, but we'll see. <laughs> there we go. Talking about remakes that do their own thing and do them exceptionally well. Exactly. Um, mm-hmm. and, and then I am on Twitter and Instagram under Gina Does Things. Excellent. And if folks want a little bit more of me, there is a new horror queers that comes out every Wednesday, and I can be reached at B Stole My Remote. And this is normally the period where I would turn it over to Jen and be like, Jen, it's your pick, but hmm. we're actually going to put our traditional uh erotic thrillers slash white ladies in crisis that we've been doing for almost a year now we're going to put it to the side so that we can revisit the original premise of this show because ladies we are (laughs) strapping back into the brightly colored leotards for season two of physical it's coming it's coming uh, well, we'll find out if they did in the mall. <laughs> this is true. Pretty sure, pretty sure they did. Pretty sure they did. What a way to end. What a way to end the season. I know, man. Talk about balls. <laughs> I am so eager to jump back into this. I remember we did have Me our too. qualms about that season finale, but also mm-hmm. the potential of where the show could go if it sort of figures its shit out. Mm-hmm. I am so anxious to find out where they're going to go with this in season two. And yeah, so we're going to be back to weekly coverage of the show when it drops in early June. But until physical, I'm going to say, do not back Mother Marcos. Yes, don't. And stay away from those boxes of rabies. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, obviously, yeah. Right, right. That's just some common sense, you know. (laughs) All right, and that's it for us. Goodbye. Bye. Bye. The Anatomy of a Scream, Pod Squad.